Welcome to Grass Talk Radio. This show is for people who play bluegrass music and anybody who might want to. Howdy folks, howdy, and welcome back to Grass Talk Radio. This episode is going to cover a multitude of topics, and I hope you don't mind my squeaky chair this morning. It's either, you have your choice, it's either the squeaky chair or the crowing rooster, and he's been a crowing, but uh, I can't hear him at the moment. But this chair, see last week I did a bunch of work on the kitchen while my wife was out of town and uh, painted the kitchen and we decided to, well, I refinished the kitchen table. And so, and first of all, we switched kitchen tables. I had two, we had this big old farmhouse style kitchen table and it really kind of cramped the kitchen a little bit. It was a little too big. And I had this other one that, uh, one day I was over, um, this is 15, 20 years ago, I went to band practice and, uh, the guy's house I was at in Decatur, Georgia, as I was leaving, I saw this big round Oak tabletop just leaned up against the, uh, the trash can. I'm like, what are you, what's this? What's this? What are you doing with this table? Well, I'm throwing it out. I'm like, why? Well, I don't, I don't have the legs for it. I'm like, can I have it? It was big. It was a circular table, oak veneer, pretty old. He didn't have a base for it. So I was like, um, I'll, I'll take that thing. Anyway, I'm not going to talk all about that, but I spent the week working on the kitchen, refinishing the kitchen table. And, you know, I completely lost track of where I was going with this. It is six o'clock in the morning or pretty close to it. I woke up this morning, uh, walked out the back door. Uh, by the way, determined that th- this morning I would get this podcast recorded before my wife and son even woke up because I, I need a quiet house and with school out and stuff, there's no such thing as a quiet house. And if I wait until the evening, it's just too dead come hot. I think it was 98 here yesterday. It's just hot, dry, and humid. F- figure that one out. <laughs> dry and humid. Uh, that's uh, America's Georgia in July. Anyway, I walked out there this morning, full moon. Or maybe it was full moon yesterday. But big old moon just, it was like a giant beacon shining on me and you know, I'm fascinated by things astronomical and, you know, phenomenon of, I, I just don't think enough people take notice of those things, which affect us all. And so anyway, forget the kitchen stuff. We'll talk about the kitchen some other time. Um, but when they got home, I've got two big old fig trees that are probably, I don't know, 12, 15 feet tall. And been watching them, waiting on them to get ripe. And he just covered up with little green figs when they left to go to New York. And about the time they got back, they're starting to ripen. So Jackson and I got a little stepladder and went out there and picked probably about, I don't know, maybe a gallon, 
yeah, probably about a, maybe a little more than a gallon of uh, figs. So we split them into two baskets and my wife took half of them and gave them to her boss, which is, you know, that's a good idea. Always bring your boss goodies. Her boss likes to make fig jelly and jam and stuff. And she knows we have those trees. And I did the same with the other half. Ended up uh, cranking out, I guess, it amounted to about a quart, you know, two pint jars full. And it's so easy to make that I I really highly recommend if you've never made your own jam. I mean, jelly's one thing, but jam is nothing to it. Even a guy like me, even, you know, I'm like that guy that I know how to do bacon, sausage, scrambled eggs, um, chili, you know, all that guy food, that cowboy stuff. Stuff that involves frying pans, meat, and fire. You know, I'm, I'm pretty good at cooking that kind of stuff. But don't ask me to bake a cake or anything. But making jam, boy, that is easy. Which brings me to the subject of jams. And by the way, Jackson loves that fig jam. He loves it. I got him started on it seven years ago when we moved down here because all of a sudden I had a fig tree full of of figs and i i must have put up like two gallons of fig jam we ate boy we ate fig jam every day and probably too much of it but it got me on the topic of jams and let me talk just a minute about jamming i got an email from a guy named mike and let me just pull it up here real quick going to get to, I'm going to get to so many things. And let me tell you, you get up this early in the morning, your brain don't work right. I'm not sure mine works right, you know, anytime, but let me find Mike's email here. Mike, by the way, Mike, if you're listening, Mike is the guy who suggested to me, who first planted the seed in my mind to start a Patreon page. He was it's like, hey, you know, I'd donate to you if you had a Patreon page. I th- I think, and Mike, uh, you can correct me. If, well, I'm probably wrong, but because I get so many emails from different people, not so many. I get a lot of emails from different people. It's hard to keep everybody straight sometimes. But Mike uh, is the guy that said, I can, uh, it's like, how many times can I buy the Jam Session Survival Book to support the show? You know, I don't need 20 copies of it. He's like, you should start a Patreon page. And honestly, I had been on Patreon a couple times and just like Skype and just like Facebook is starting to do and just like PayPal has already done and YouTube is like always constantly warning me. Every time I go on these sites, they say your browser needs to be upgraded. And then I look at Firefox and I look at Safari and I look at, you know, all these different browsers and they say, Oh, sorry, your computer is not running the correct operating system. Sorry, you can't, we don't support that old version. So then I go to the Apple websites and I go, okay, well give me the, you know, give me the upgrade on the, uh, update my system. Oh, we're sorry, Mr. Laird. (laughs) Well, they don't, don't say that we're sorry 
the new operating system will not run on your old computer. And you know what? What really hacks me off is that the computer is not that old and it works flawlessly. Except on the internet, trying to do Skype, trying to do Facebook chat, all these things, you know, it's not that old. It's beautiful. The batteries holds a good charge. Everything about that computer, if you, you know, if it was a computer in the pre-internet days, you'd go, this thing is smoking because it's a good computer. My wife's got a Mac, same problem. She's at like 10.5 and she can't progress any further. Sorry. You know, your computer won't even handle 10.6. So anyway, this guy, Mike and Mike, thanks for the, uh, for the email. I'm kind of responding to you here rather than writing with my thumbs on my iPod. My iPod has become my substitute for these computers you know, these out-of-date computers, because this little iPod is up-to-date. I can get on PayPal with, in fact, I do all of my PayPal business on this little dinky iPod. I have to get my glasses out, and I have to type very carefully with my thumbs. Anyway, so Mike is the guy who said, hey, you know, you, you should start a Patreon page. So I go on, you know, the computer well, I can't start a Patreon page because Patreon's website won't even display correctly on my browser, you know, the, the stuff I was just talking about. And I thought, well, this is a this is a fix because the Patreon could buy the new computer, but I need the new computer to set up the you know, it's like one of those uh catch twenty two situations. So I managed, I, I was like, Hey, could I borrow, I borrow my son's computer. Could I borrow that? I set up the Patreon page. And so Mike uh, was asking me, well, he said something to the effect. Well, I'll just read it. Very smart to add Patreon. I hope that is adding up. I also enjoyed the episode. Your son did very valuable skill for him to develop. Yeah. He's really good on the mic. Uh, he's, I, I remember when he first made a couple of little videos, I could hear some imitation where he had definitely watched a couple of my watch and learn videos. And, Cause he would say stuff like he would be talking along and then say, so now let's take a look. And I used to say stuff like that when we would cut from the headshot to the close up. I'd be like, you know, learning to play your three basic chords, your one, four, and five are very important because 90% of the chords you'll ever play in bluegrass are the one, four, five. So let's take a look. <laughs> you know, I would write my, uh, my head shots, uh, long shots like that. And then you guys just gonna have to forgive me for the squeaky chair. It's driving me crazy. This thing, this chair is like an 1870 chair tell you about the chair some other time and buying them from my neighbor and my wife several times wanting to paint them which i've totally refused to allow i only have two things that i completely refuse to allow you're not painting my antique chairs and no tv <laughs> she don't care about the tv anymore she she can get her all the tv she wants on her iphone like iphone 32 or whatever they have out so just forgive this squeakiness. It just adds a touch of hominess. So back to Mike's email. He says, okay, 
So this is the guy that suggested the Patreon. And I said, okay, let's do it. And so what I responded to him was the Patreon, the funds that are coming in through Patreon, I'm just rat holing that money to buy a new computer and to buy a a replacement portable digital recorder because I've talked in past episodes about my Zoom H2 just mysteriously biting the dust as do all technological creations of mankind eventually fail. That thing failed, but I loved it. I loved it because if I wanted to interview somebody, we could just sit down at the kitchen table, set it in front of us, hit record and start yakking. And so that's probably going to be the first thing and the computer is going to be the second thing, but that's what the Patreon's going for. So if you feel any sympathy for the longevity of grass talk radio, um, you know, go over to patreon.com slash Bradley Laird and you know, you can kick in as little as you want or as much as you want for as long as you want or as, you know, very short time. It does. That's totally up to you. You just turn it on and off at will. So anyway, Mike says to me, question for you. Some friends, <clears throat> some friends are getting together soon and have played in, you know what? I might've got Mike. Yeah, no, Mike, this is right. Okay. I'm trying to look at these emails while I record. Some friends are getting together soon and have played in other types of bands, but not bluegrass. Any tips or resources for that first jam where nobody knows what they're doing okay thanks as always mike and he had some other stuff in there so he's talking about jam and i was just talking about jam and here's the thing <clears throat> well I'll, I'll read you what i wrote to him because you know when i was talking about making fig jam jelly is one thing jelly is like a band jelly requires the perfect amount of pectin the correct cooking temperatures, uh, filtering of the juice, uh, you know, to make a beautiful jelly is beyond my skill level. Jam, you're basically cooking fruit and throwing some sugar in it and throwing it in a jar. It's not that complicated because it's a gloppy thing. It's got all the pulp and, and it, to me, it's better. I, I like jam a lot better than jelly. Hang on, I have a sip of my coffee. So I look at jams, you know, bluegrass jams. Similarly, they're not that complicated. They can get a little complicated. They could certainly seem complicated, but they're not. So here's what I said back. I emailed him back and then I said, I may talk about it some on the show. I talked about the Patreon and, uh, rat hole and money and <clears throat> duct tape and bailing wire, et cetera. And once I get past that, Here's what I said on your jam, your upcoming jam. This is my response. That is a tough one since nobody will know how it is going to work until it's over. My best advice is to do whatever you can to make it fun. Parentheses, drinks, food, maybe, <clears throat> excuse me, food, maybe. And to be sure Everybody gets their itch scratched. Try to find out where people are. And I should have said musically. Uh, 
what you have in common, and don't expect much. The goal should be to be sure that everyone, or at least most of them, will be wanting to do it again. Organically, over some five to ten jam sessions, all questions will answer themselves. I'm recording tomorrow morning and I may talk about this a bit. So anyway, he's, you know, question about a jam, question about starting up first jam. And I would say, you know, it being conscientious and trying to make it a great jam is a good idea. And I'm starting a jam this Thursday, the first Open Bluegrass Jam will take place at Pat's Place in Americus, Georgia. That's Pizza Joint on Lee Street in Americus, Georgia, this Thursday, July the 18th, 2019, from 7 to 9 plus. Bring your instrument, acoustic instruments only, bring your instrument, let's pick, let's have fun. That's the rule. So, if I don't ever talk much about um, topical, time-sensitive things, but uh, I figure, you know, Pat's a patron of the show, so I'll plug plug the jam session. And we've got a local brewery, local being 60 miles away, um, Omaha Brewing, props to Omaha Brewing in Omaha, Georgia, not Omaha, Nebraska. They will be there introducing one of their new brews, and we're just going to have a big old time this Thursday. So I'm doing the same thing sort of that Mike is doing, in that although I'm, this is the start of an organized jam session, hopefully to be a weekly or bi-weekly or monthly event. We're not sure yet. But this is the kickoff, and how, how do you make it good? I don't know. I mean, I think the first thing is, show up, don't expect too much, and try to, anybody that comes walking in with an instrument in their hand, you as jam master, try to make sure that they have the chance to do something that they can do and that they're not just being forced down somebody else's idea of what they're supposed to do. You know, even if it's not the jam, the perfect jam for you, you may want to get together and play nothing but Stanley Brothers and Flatten and Scruggs and Upwalks, this mandolin player, who knows nothing of any of that. Well, how are they going to play any of that? You know, that might be your dream, but it might not be theirs. And trust me, people's dreams do change. They may come in wanting to do, you know, rain and snow and uh, friend of the devil. And five years later, they're heavy into Ralph Stanley, you know, but you got to let them do a little bit of what they're doing, you know, and don't, don't use the initial jam session as much of a teaching opportunity. It's more of introducing each other to each other. And you may have known each other for years, but you may have never played together and just pick, you know, he, he was asking me, you know, how do you. Uh, any suggestions for kicking things off, you know, <clears throat> should the guitar 
set the rhythm, man on chop, something else. And quite frankly, that's, I think that's dialing in way too detailed. Just start, just get them out and tune and look at each other and go, so what do you want to do? Somebody's going to do something and you've started and it'll go from there. Try to have fun and try to make your main goal to be, I want as many of these people as possible Except, I mean, there is the possibility that you'll have someone there who is a jerk, who is really wound a little too tight, or this is not their thing. You know, if that happens, you might not want them back. I mean, you know, that happens all the time. But try, try to make your goal. Let's just have some fun without a big agenda. Let's try to give everybody a chance to do something. And your little internal goal as jam master, I want the people who got something out of this to want to do it again ASAP. If you accomplish that, then you'll have another jam and it's going to take a while. You know, you Rome wasn't built in a day. Good jams. I mean, those magical jams, I can count on one hand, and I've been doing this for nearly 40 years. And I, I remember them specifically, and I may have talked about this before. The, the ultimate, the perfect jam, those are very, very, very rare. Most of them are, you know, somewhere in the middle, and there are some bad ones too. So, Mike, just uh, give me back a report after your jam and let me know how it went. And I'll be giving a report on starting up this jam session, the Pat's Jam, Thursday night, 7 to 9, July the 18th, 2019. So all of you listening in 2026, sorry you missed it. And I know that America's Georgia is probably out of the standard driving distance of most of my listeners. But if you happen to be in America's and you happen to be listening, it'll be happening. So, okay, enough about uh, Mike's question there. Now I'm going to get to the the heart of this episode. It only took me 22 minutes to finally get around to the real topic. And it is from another listener. And I have to thank this guy. Let Let me go back to my email here and look at my flagged emails. Okay. I got a bunch. Oh, man, I'm way behind on my emails. So a couple of you folks, if you're listening, uh, Gina and uh, who else? Well, I'm not going to go through the list here. I have been busy the last few days and just haven't gotten to them. Okay. But I'll get around to you. Don't worry. I will. Let me talk about this one. Okay, this guy, Bruce. Bruce, I hear you, brother. I hear you. I read this email and I couldn't really respond to it because the question is so deep. What I think, you know, when you write an email or when you say anything or when you do anything, there's always more beneath the surface and a lot of being a good communicator is combining the art of listening on the surface to exactly what is being stated and then also thinking 
what is not being stated? In other words, reading between the lines. You know, you ever thought about this when you're, when you're talking to someone else, there are just the words going back and forth. Certainly if you're texting someone else or emailing someone else, it's just the words. You don't get the body language. You don't get the, the gestures. You don't get, you know, the eye contact, if any. So you can't read into someone's soul or deeper into what is he really saying? You can't even get, you know, inflections in the voice through written stuff. So I read his email and he he's very clearly just stating some things. He starts out with, um, and Bruce, I hope you don't mind me reading this. I'm not going to give out your last name here, but the reason I am addressing this is because this is a common thing. <clears throat> Here's what he said. Just real quickly, and I'm going to jump through some of this. He's pouring his heart out here. He said, I've ordered and received your $100 package. And there he's talking about the mandolin treasure chest, which is basically all of my ebooks. It's like 10 ebooks, 24 video lessons, a whole slew of jam tracks. <clears throat> the mandolin treasure chest. It's two years worth of lessons. Okay, I've ordered that and have been giving it a couple hours a day time between reading and picking. Okay, good. That's what you're supposed to do. And then he, he states this. These two words right here tell a lot. I'm old, but have been picking for probably 30 years and never really got any good at it. So let me address that, that part. This is to me, the underlying question here. He starts out with, I'm old, but I've been picking for probably 30 years and never really got any good at it. He clearly wants to play better than, better than he presently does, because why would you spend a hundred bucks on two years worth of mandolin video lessons? If you didn't have the desire to play better. He clearly wants to play better and he's clearly been doing it for a very long time or trying, you know, possibly other stuff, maybe play guitar. He says, yes, I played in a band and do jam once in a while. I'm pretty new at bluegrass and only know a few songs. Okay. But he started with I'm old and you remember I did an episode early on you know, can you teach an old dog new tricks where I discuss all this? So Bruce, if you haven't listened to that, you might listen to that one again. Look, I'm 59. I'm about to turn 60. I know it. Um, being old or getting old, um, what it, what it means, you begin to change your outlook, your, the timeline when you're 10 years old, you don't see the end. You don't. And in in your thirties, you don't, you don't see it. First of all, you're so busy and you're having kids and you know, you don't look and you don't sit around and ever much spend any time thinking about one day I might not be able to do this anymore. You just don't dwell on it. But as you get older, those thoughts do occur. You see some of your friends die and then more of them and stuff like that. And so your view of what is valuable 
begins to change. You know, things that weren't that important begin to become more important. And if you haven't fulfilled some of these things, you become possibly some people become more maybe desperate or frantic to get those in. People talk about their bucket list. I, you know, I always want to go to Paris and by God, I will go to Paris before. You know. And so people begin to try to like check off things off their bucket list or cram in a lot of things that <clears throat> I'm not talking about Bruce here because he didn't say this, but maybe you spent, let's, let's choose some imaginary person who messed around with a mandolin on and off for let's say 30 years, but ran a couple of businesses, raised three kids, put two of them through college, um, is on his second wife, uh, has spent a lot of time trying to make money and rat hole of money in his 401k and his fidelity account and all this stuff. And then on his 70th birthday, he realizes that he really would like to play some music and he goes to a jam session. I'm not talking about Bruce here. This is, this is Bruce didn't say any of this. I'm just imagining here and really wants to do it. He wants to do it the same way he would have wanted to do it when he was 16, but he knows time is short and his hands don't work like they used to. So what do you do? What do you do? How do you, how do you maximize, um, shall we say, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness when you know your time is limited and all our time is limited. If you're just born, sorry, they don't, they don't hand you a little card and say, okay, you were born on this date, your birth certificate. They don't give you the death certificate with the date already on it and go, now you got exactly 37 and a half years, you know, or you, you got 92 years. They don't tell you. You never know. See, that's that's one of the basic human questions. And it's a driving force behind a lot of things. A lot of things get done because people feel like, well, I better do it now because if I don't do it now, I may never be able to do it. Not going to go too, too deep into this philosophy, but I do address it a little bit in, you know, can you teach an old dog new tricks? But I think what you have to do, well, let me go back to his email. He says, um, and now I am back to his email. He says here, in getting your sessions and practicing, I found that, yes, the notes and timing are okay, but without some music to get the gist of the song, I'm getting just plain bored and find that there is no excitement to keep me interested and wanting to practice. Sally Gooden is a bunch of notes with no music. So I don't want to go to a jam with a bunch of notes. I want to know what the song is all about. I could learn if I could hear and use my ear to help put it all together. And he talks about some other stuff. He ends with this. After practicing so much time, I'm losing interest. Any suggestions? Love your podcast. Been listening. And you do a great job. Keep up the good work, Bruce. 
Okay. And I wrote him back. Or did I? Let me check. I, I Sometimes I can't forget. I can't remember. I can't forget. Sometimes I can't remember if I wrote him or I just thought out the reply <laughs> in advance. You know. But here's what's happening, in, in my opinion. And I'm going to tell you about a, a friend of mine in, in a minute. I think Bruce has stalled because, and Bruce, correct me if I'm wrong. This is just my hypothesis that I think you do have the dream, but the dream almost requires having that wide open, never ending horizon line of time. I mean, it takes a long time to learn to play music. And when you don't have that, you know, any kind of vision of an end, it's easier to just relax and uh, just do it. But when you do, you feel like you're having to cram it all in. You know, you're trying to check off things off the list and you're trying to make that thing happen. And, you know... Bruce might live another 40, 50 years. I, I don't know. And I could die tomorrow. What, 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 none of us know. And so much of it has very little to do with how you live your life. I mean, you know, you never know. I've mentioned, you know, you never know about that log truck coming down the road and the guy's on his cell phone or you are. And, you know, you just don't know. And, you know, everybody's heard the classic stories of the you know, the 99-year-old guy that they interview in the local paper, and they say, so what is the secret to your long life? And he goes, well, I smoke two cigars a day, and I drink heavily or something. You know, and you're like, what? How's this possible? And, you know, you hear about the 30-year-old, you know, playing softball, and he's standing on second base, and he just keels over dead as a doornail at 30 for no apparent reason. These things we just don't know. No one knows, you know. That's so... It makes the most psychological sense to me to just put that out of your mind. Just forget about it because you're never going to know. It's like if it's unknowable, don't waste your time even thinking about it. So now that you don't have to worry about it anymore, just go ahead and treat life. I'm not saying act like a child. I'm saying treat life as if you, as if you do not have time limitations. I like the 80-year-old man planting a tree that will not mature for another hundred years. He don't care. He's going to plant that tree. Just live life. Don't worry about, you know, how much time you have. This is not about that. It's about uh, every day you've got a day. Do something with it, you know. Live life, you know. Follow that pursuit of happiness. And let me tell you, the pursuit of happiness, it, you know, is often misconstrued by certain philosophical beliefs as being selfish. But, and it is, it is. Your own happiness is a selfish motive, but the best way to generate your own happiness is to create happiness for others. It really is true. And, you know, if I have any fault that I constantly work on is to try to understand that better, 
balance it and not sacrifice yourself on some, you know, scourging yourself or, you know, because you need to be happy too in order to make the other people around you happy. If you're miserable and you're just, a, you know, you're just being a slave to other people's interests, how good can you be to them? Man, I'm getting way off too much philosophy here this morning. But anyway, I just think that my basic advice for Bruce would be to listen to episode 88. Grass Talk Radio episode 88. It's called Give It a Rest. Because he's faced, he he's, you know, gung-ho wants to do it. And I think he should do it so long as he wants to. But if he's getting bored... He's, uh, you shouldn't do it. Give it a rest, you know, take a break, do something else. Maybe this is, you know, some holdover from 40 years ago. And maybe, maybe you would find more happiness and create more happiness and good things in the world by doing something else. Maybe, maybe don't worry about it. Maybe, you know, instead of playing a mandolin, build a mandolin or, you know, you, you want to know about Sally Gooden? I'll tell you how to. You want to know about Sally Gooden? Here's what you do. Go to Hallettsville, Texas. Or go to Weezer, Idaho. And don't even take an instrument. Just walk around and ask those hundred fiddle players to play Sally Gooden. And just listen. You want to get Sally Gooden? Listen to that. You never heard Sally Gooden like you've heard a bunch of fiddlers. And I'm not talking about a gang of a hundred. Listen to a hundred people. Everybody plays Sally Gooden and everybody plays it differently. But if you don't come away thinking, you know what Sally Gooden is after that, I mean, what I'm saying is those couple little notes, those notes that you hear, you say, I just hear notes. I don't hear Sally Gooden. That's because you don't know what Sally Gooden is right now. You got to hear somebody sing Sally Gooden. Go back, Bruce, and listen to some old recordings of Sally Gooden. Dig up everything you can find. Just listen to those. And if you never play it, you may come away going, well, I really like Sally Gooden. I don't want to play Sally Gooden. Listen to everybody. Listen to all possible versions of Sally Gooden. And it all begin to blend together into one thing because everybody's doing a little bit of what the true Sally Gooden is. It would be like if you said, uh, if somebody came up to you and said, what is a Christian? And uh, you say, well, uh, my neighbor over there, Joe, he's a Christian. Okay, well, he's only doing like half of what, you know, a Christian is a, supposed to do, maybe. And then, well, okay, well, let's go down the road. Well, and somebody else is doing a couple other very Christian things or any you work your way on down the line. And. Nobody is the perfect Christian. And I'm using this as an example. I'm not turning this into a religious podcast. But I would say that the only true Christian was Christ himself, okay? You know, he was doing 100% of it. So when you walk around and you're listening to a bunch of people do Sally Gooden, nobody's playing Sally Gooden. They're all playing their version of Sally Gooden, and somewhere contained within all that are bits and pieces of the ultimate Sally Gooden. 
which doesn't even exist, except for maybe the first guy who ever thought it up and wrote it and said, this is Sally Good. This is my tune, Sally Good. There's an album called Mandolin Extravaganza. I think there's seven or eight mandolin players on it. Came out about 15 years ago. I mean, you got everybody on it. Well, you got most of them on there. All the big boys uh, playing the mandolins, and they're all playing the same song. So it's like seven mandolin players sitting in a circle and Del McCurry playing guitar. See, I forget who all's on it. Um, great mandolin players. And they're all playing the same tune, and they all go around the circle playing their version of the tune. They all sound quite different. Well, how do they all sound so different, but they all sound like the same tune? And then at the end of each song, they play together. And so they're all jamming away on maybe Sally Good. Now, I can't remember if Sally Good's on there. Um, and what emerges out of all that chaos of, you know, Ricky's version and, uh, you know, everybody's version all just mashed together. And what arises out of that, I think, is sort of the spirit of Sally Gooden. And it's it's fascinating to listen to that thing. So go if you you know, if you can't go to the Fiddler's Convention, listen to this mandolin extravaganza. And possibly give it a rest. And maybe maybe you know, don't don't push so hard. That mandolin treasure chest, as I say in the description of it, it's like one to two years worth of material for a good student. That's what I said in the description of it. So a few months, a few weeks, even a year, you, you're not, you're not going to take it all in. And there's a lot of other stuff to take in. I mean, I don't in any way claim that that's, hey, this is it. You learned this and you, you got it. No. Because there's an almost infinite amount of things that you can do on a mandolin or any instrument. So it, it may be that you're overwhelming yourself. And this and I feel like his interest has stalled. And I got to thinking about the word stall because my son Jackson, who you've all been introduced to multiple times, he was in here on his computer uh, playing this. Uh, there's a website that has flight simulator very much like the old original microsoft flight simulator except it's a lot more advanced these days and you can just play it on a website you don't even have to buy the software and you know of course he's he's flying russian fighter jets and helicopters and hang gliders and you know there's every kind of aircraft and you can you can be in the Concorde taking off from paris if you want to that's where you can start you know so he's flying the Concorde around and and he's his, uh, you know, he's crashing right and left. He's upside down, stall warning, stall warning. And I was like, here, let me try that thing. I'm like, first of all, give me a Cessna 172. Not, I, I, I don't know how to fly a Concorde. Come on. Just give me a Cessna and start me out on a somewhere flat and level. Just put me on a runway like out in Omaha or someplace. I'm just going to try to take off. And see if I can maintain, you know, steady level flight. That's that's my goal because as I'm my age and Jackson just he wants to, you know, do barrel loops in the uh, powered hang glider and he don't care if he crashes and all this kind of stuff. That's the difference between youth and experience, you might say. 
And all I want to do is successfully take off, achieve a level flight, turn around, and see if I can land it without crashing. And so it got me thinking about stalls because a stall in an aircraft is a lot like the stall that a lot of players have where they, their advancement, their, you know, learning, even their enjoyment, clearly he is expressing that his enjoyment has stalled. So what do you do? Well, so let me talk about an airplane. In an airplane, and I'm not a pilot. My father was a pilot. When I was a kid, when I was Jackson's age, my father got a bug in his head to learn to fly, to get his private pilot's license. And we used to go to this little airport in Kennesaw, Georgia. And dad signed up for private pilot lessons. And, uh, I learned a lot about flying and I started building model airplanes and things like this because I wasn't doing the lesson, but dad was. So I was sort of learning vicariously. I would go through his flight manuals and fiddle around with his little analog, uh, slide rule, um, calculator gizmos and stuff. Yeah, it was just fascinating to me, but I couldn't go up with him because he was going up with the instructor and he didn't have his license yet. So we could just go to the airport and watch, you know, we'd stand around and watch the whole family, you know, but in this process, I learned a lot about the basics of, you know, flight. And one of the things is that, you know, the wings produce lift when there's airflow over the wings. Um, so you're, you're, you get in your little plane, let's say we're going to take off in that Piper Cub or that uh, Cherokee 140 or whatever, and you hit the throttle and you rev that motor up and you're rolling down that runway. As the aircraft speeds up, the amount of air, the airspeed passing over the airfoil, the wing, increases. And as it increases and increases, you will eventually begin, you will begin generating lift. The wings will cre generate lift due to the pressure gradient between the upper side and the lower side of the wing. The bottom side of the wing basically pushes up towards the top because it wants to equalize the pressure. And the more, the more airflow you have, the greater lift you will have. So the plane basically lifts off by itself, just simply by moving forward through the air quick enough to generate enough lift. And then you're climbing. You're climbing sort of in a level. Your aircraft is level, but you're, you've lifted off the ground and you're just rising because of the lift brought on by the airfoil design. So you're, you're going up. You're going up. But you're not going up rapidly. So you decide, well, there's a tree up ahead. Maybe I should pull back on the stick a little bit and increase the angle of attack and try climbing a little more rapidly because I need to get over those pine trees at the end of the runway. So, sorry, I hit the microphone there as I was pretending to hold the yoke. 
So you ease back, you pull back on the yoke or the stick, and that lowers the tail and raises your nose a little bit and increases the angle of attack. That creates more lift because there's more pressure on the underside of the wing. So you, you're rising at a faster rate. And I'm going to tie this stuff into music here in a minute. That's great. Presuming you have enough power to maintain enough airspeed to maintain flight. You could even increase the throttle as you pull back on the stick. Probably a good idea. Because if you don't, you are in danger of a stall. Let's say you're taking off and you're at a nice, easy, mid-range um, airspeed, but you got enough airspeed to generate enough lift to get off the ground. You're a beginner. You're like that beginner mantle player. And the aircraft lifts off and you see the trees ahead and you just pull back on the stick, but you pull back too much. And you, you've got too much angle of attack. You're trying to climb too rapidly. And the wings become like brakes. And the airflow over the wing is all disrupted and turbulent. And your aircraft, the, the air flowing over the wing will slow down so much because of all that turbulence of you having too great of an angle of attack and trying to climb too rapidly. And you will lose lift. And that plane will drop like a rock. If you have no lift, I mean, is, you know, I don't know what... Uh, Cessna 150 weighs, but probably 1,500 pounds or I don't, I don't know. And it drops like a, like a 1,500 pound lead weight and you drop and you could crash. I mean, if you're only 30 feet off the ground and the first thing you do is stall the aircraft, you're going down a, a buzzer, a warning buzzer is going to go off your stall warning. Lights are going to flash and you have very little time to recover because you're only 30 feet off the ground. Now you can do the very same thing at 5,000 feet. If you're flying straight and level, everything's, you know, just all hunky dory and you're at 5,000 feet and you pull the same shenanigan of too much angle of attack. You, you point your nose up like you're going to fly to the moon or something and your airspeed's dropping and the stall warning indicator goes off. And that plane, I've actually been in my, my dad's plane when he did this, when he was practicing recovering from stalls, which is probably a good idea. Because we're talking about Bruce stalling in his learning. When that plane, you know, you're, you fly along just great. And you, all you do is pull the nose up. Just keep pulling it up, pull it up, pull it up, pull it up. And you're going to be slowing down and that plane will almost stop and it'll just sit there and shudder like it doesn't, you know, it's, it's a weird feeling. Very weird. So how do you recover? Because if you don't correct properly at this point, the thing may just tip off to one side or the other and start, you know, go into a spin. And recovering from a spin, as I know from, I, I spun out several times <laughs> on that flight simulator just two days ago. Once you get into a chaotic spin, it is very difficult to recover. It's just like life. If you let your life turn into a chaotic tailspin, harder to recover. You know, you need to detect the first signs of stall danger. 
when that stall warning goes off, you better correct. Don't be fiddling around waiting because when things get crazy, you may not be able to correct. Now, admittedly, at 5,000 feet, you've got a little a little more cushion for error, a little more margin of error, you know? And that's, that's sort of like if you're 25 and trying to learn how to play and you're learning stalls, you've got more margin for margin of error due to the average lifespan. You know, I may screw up big time now, but, you know, maybe when I'm 40, I'll straighten my life out and, you know, actually learn how to play this thing. Um, but when you're, when you're close to the ground, you, you better just, the best thing is don't stall. <laughs> don't stall because you may not have time to recover because here's the remedy for recovery. You're losing lift because you're underpowered. Look, an F4 Phantom or some of these crop dusters, they don't have this problem because they got lots of power. You pour on the power, point that nose, and you can fly straight up. But you can't do that in every aircraft. A Piper Cub J3 is not going to do that. It doesn't have enough power. So if you're in danger of stall, it's probably because you're trying, you've got your nose too high and your angle of attack is too great. So what's the remedy? Nose down. Point the nose down. If pulling the nose up is what made you stall, point the nose down. If you have room, if the ground isn't too close to you, you know, when you're 30 feet off the ground, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be very difficult to force yourself to push the nose of the plane and point yourself toward the ground. But that is the only chance you have of survival. You have to point the nose down. You must. And, and increase the throttle if you can, which seems crazy. You know, you, you got a problem here. Your plane is stalling. And this idiot instructor beside me is saying, well, aim low and hit the gas. Because all you're trying to do is regain airspeed. And if you regain airspeed, the lift comes back. And with any luck, you, you point your nose down and you're zooming towards the ground. The lift is increasing. And just at the last second, you recover and you just barely miss the ground. And you begin that gentle climb again. And you go, oh my God, my heart's beating. That was scary. I went up in my dad after he had uh, started soloing. And this may have actually even been after he got his license. And I'm, you know, in the sixth grade. And he would only take one of us at a time. He would never take the whole family. He's a smart guy, you know. He didn't want to kill the whole family. But he'll kill us one at a time, you know, in case he had a crash. So I'm, you know, sitting there in the in this front seat, can barely see those. Uh, it's hard to see out the front windshield of a Cessna. It's really high because of the motors up there. And, you know, and being a little kid, I could, you know, I had to mostly just look out the side window. It's hard to see out the front, especially when you're climbing, you know, when the nose is up, you know, you really can't see out the front. Um, so you got to be looking at your indicators on the, you know, your, your artificial horizon and stuff like that. But anyway, dad's going to, uh, practice stalls and he wasn't really stalling the aircraft. What he was doing was almost stalling it. You know, he was just doing it enough to set off the warning buzzer and then he would recover. And it was like a roller coaster. It was like going up that big roller coaster and then the nose dropping you know, as you go over the top, 
like climbing these little, you know, and he would, he did three or four of those with me in there. And I felt that shudder and that weirdness and had a lot of faith in my father that he knew what he was doing. And he only knew what he was doing because the instructor had done it quite a few times with him sitting where I was sitting. But it's a, that's a freaky weird thing to think that the re, the recovery to a stall is to point your nose down because you got to gain airspeed. So let's talk about music. Same thing, I think. It could be that your stall, that anyone's stalling out, is because their angle of attack is too high and their power is not great enough. Because as you're learning, your power is experience and knowledge. Experience and knowledge and, and physical things, too. But when you're new to something, when you've only been playing a few years... Or a few weeks. I mean, it's all relative. This is all a moving relative scale. This is true probably at any, for any level of a musician at any time in their life. But there are some things that are beyond your grasp yet that you, that you could reach for. But if you reach for them too rapidly, you may stall. Because it can get over your head and turn to chaos real quick. If, if you take my book, Mantle Masterclass, and try to read it in a weekend and then go to a jam session and apply all those principles in your playing that weekend, it ain't going to work. It, it takes time to digest. Uh, you know, I put 25 years worth of knowledge into one book, 70-something pages, and it's impossible to think that you're going to read it and then... B, just instantly get that 25 years worth of experience. I'm not saying this information is not valuable. Knowing how to recover from a stall, reading it in the book at ground school, you know, I'm sure they had a chalkboard and drew this out on chalkboard and said, now, now fellows, uh, when, uh, when the stall indicator goes off, you do this and this, this, and everybody goes, yeah, okay, fine. That's a world of difference between actually being in the plane, especially if you were flying solo and encountering that stall warning. That's a whole different world. This is the real world now, and you better, by God, know how to do it. And if you do it successfully, you've gained some experience. But back to that remedy, nose down, nose down, quit trying to climb so much. Maybe you're struggling too hard to get to some far off undefined goal, or maybe it's defined. You want to play, uh, you know, Jerusalem Ridge, just like Bill Monroe, or you want to play Foggy Mountain Breakdown faster than Bela Fleck, or I don't know. You may have set your sights too high. You may have, you may be pulling back too hard on that stick and you don't have the power to climb at that angle of attack. So, if you get the stall warning indicator, which Bruce has, is getting, he's getting that. Recover. Don't keep doing the same thing or it's going to end up in disaster. Back off. Go for straight, level, stable flight. First try to recover. Point your nose down a little bit. Quit working on that thing. If that thing is driving you crazy, if Sally Gooden's driving you crazy, Go do something else. Go play something else. Work on your chords. 
Go build a model airplane. Go build a little radio controlled model airplane. Get into that. Try to learn how to fly that thing. Because flying a radio controlled model airplane, especially one that you spent about 80 hours building, and then you crashed it on the very first attempt to learn how to teach yourself how to fly, is a, a quite a learning experience. And it's a lot like self-teaching an instrument. But it's a lot safer than doing it in a real airplane. So maybe that's what you need to do. Just go fishing. Go do something else for a while. And don't worry about it. Your angle of attack, perhaps, is causing the stall. Maybe you're trying too hard because you feel like time is limited. And forget that. We talked about it. It's limited for everybody. If you're just born, you might die the next day. You don't know. So just forget that time limitation. You can't cram it in. You either, you'll learn what you can learn as it comes. You can do things to help it. But if you're pulling back too hard on that stick and you don't have the power to fly straight up, you ain't going to fly straight up. You're going to spin out and hopefully not crash and not have to bail out and pull the chute if you have one. So there, there's a lot of similarities. There are some other similarities with flight and just in the general learning experience. You know, thinking about my dad when he wanted and why he wanted to learn to fly. I think it came because we lived pretty close to this little airport. And you'd see these little planes, you know, fly, people flying around, you know. And then he met a guy at work who had a pilot's license. And owned his own Piper Cub J3. And he he took him flying one day. It was some Sunday afternoon. He's like, hey, why don't you go with me, you know? And they flew from Marietta up to Cartersville. Landed, got out, had a pack of crackers, drank a Coke, climbed back in, took off from the grass, flew back. The reason I know this is because I went with them. They crammed me in the back of that plane, too. And it was, it was, it lit a fire in him. You know, it, it's like whatever lit that fire in you to play bluegrass. You saw it, you heard it, you experienced it somehow. And that dream hatched inside your mind and you wanted to do it. Well, what's the next step? You, the dream is here. What do you do? Well, you act on it. If you don't, do this step of taking action and committing to do it, well, the dream will fade and you won't ever do it. You've got to take some action. So you bought that instrument. You bought a book. You got maybe a couple of my videos. You sign up for lessons. You went to a jam session. You know, you're taking action and you've committed. Gonna do it. Well, dad did that. He signed up. Signed up for lessons. Well, you know, they're going to maybe take you up for a ride the first time, you know, kind of get you excited about it. And then you're going to do some ground school. You got to walk around a plane, learn all the parts of the plane, learn how to, you know, check the fuel for water and how to, you know what I'm saying? Make sure all the control surfaces are good and the hinges work and the cables aren't busted and, you know, check the, kick the tires and stuff. You got to learn all that stuff. So it starts with ground school and that's like those beginner lessons. Well, you put your strap on and you, here's how you pick and hold your pick. And, you know, let me show you how to make a two finger G chord, that sort of thing. Then with the flight instructor, 
you begin to fly and he's right there holding your hand and making sure you don't kill yourself or kill him. And that's sort of what lessons are about. And my video lessons and, and books are that. Although I'm not there to, you know, spin out with you. <laughs> you got to learn the rules. You got to learn safety. But eventually he's going to let you hold the stick and take control of the aircraft. And that's, you know, that occurs in lessons or, or even in self-teaching. When in my videos, when I say, okay, now practice that with the track, I'm handing the stick to you and you're going to try it. And goal number one is to, he don't let you take off and he's sure ain't going to let you land in your first lesson or two. All he's going to do is get it up there, be telling you about some things. And when he's got it nice and level and stable, he's going to let you keep it nice and level and stable. And then you're going to learn how to make some real gentle banking turns and you're going to get the feel of it. And then he's going to take back over and he's going to land it. This is exactly what beginners are, you know, don't get too much on your plate. You know, he doesn't, you don't sign up for lessons and they hand you the keys to the plane and say, okay, have fun. You know, and you hop in and you've read the instruction sheet on, you know, that ain't how they do it. You know, a little guidance, and that's you can get this at jam sessions. You can get this at lessons. Um, you work your way into it very slowly, and then you're going to learn takeoffs because taking off is a whole lot easier than landing, you know, because you, at least you're going away from the earth. And really, all you got to do to take off an airplane, if you got enough runway, and uh, is to hit the gas and Hang on, basically. It'll take itself off, generally speaking. Just hold her straight and level. Don't don't dive into the ground, you know, when you're 10 feet off the ground. Just try to hold her real steady and hit the gas, and she's going. Now, once you're up, that's a different story. But takeoff's a whole lot easier than landing. So a lot of times, the, the next thing the instructor would do is, you know, all right, you're going to take it off. And then be like, all right, it's, the instructor goes, stop, 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 stop. Pull, idle the engine. And then he'll look at you and go, what did you do wrong? And you're, I remember my dad telling this story. He says, um, uh, you know, I, I, um, I, I, don't, I don't know. And the instructor says, well, when you called the tower on the radio, you did a great job. You called in and requested permission to take off. He said, and the instructor said, um, but you forgot to turn the radio on. You have to turn the radio on and then call the tower. Okay. And you know, I'm sure my dad's face turned beet red. You know, this is, this is what learning is about. You got to remember to turn the radio on. If you want to talk over the radio, he's wondering why the tower hasn't answered him yet. You know, the instructors, you know, patiently guiding him through this and he takes off and then, you know, it's probably several several lessons before he's landing and then then it's going to be a good while before you got to learn how to navigate you got to in in daylight you got to understand you know what to do in emergencies and weather and what how to deal with stalls and all these sorts of things you got to learn an awful lot and, and to be a good musician you got to learn an awful lot you know, nobody's buying tickets to go hear beginners play the dobro. Nobody wants to hear that. They want to hear Jerry Douglas, you know, Rob Ikes. 
Um, and you don't turn into that overnight. You got to learn all these things and you got to gain experience. And then eventually they say, all right, you may now solo. So now dad could go to the airport all by himself and solo. He can't take any passengers with him, but he can solo. Cause they, you know, they don't mind if he kills himself, but they don't want him killing other people. There goes a crop duster over the house right now. The ultimate pilots, I think. Those guys are thrill seekers. You got to learn how to deal with all this. And then you got to rack up um, instrument flying and flying at night. Imagine that for the first time. And you just, you do it. Dad got lost one time. He flew from Kennesaw to Athens, Georgia and back. Well, he thought he was lost. He really wasn't lost. There goes that crop duster right on cue. I hope that picked up. He just thought he was lost. He was following a, you know, like a Lorian beacon or something. And uh, he's just expecting to see the lights of the airport. And he didn't. And it was freaking him out. He said he got pretty freaked out. Um, but he did it. He made it. And that'll happen to you in your jam session or when you get called to do a gig and you're, it's, you're in a little over your head. But maybe you have built up the experience. You just don't know it yet. Anyway. There's a lot of similarities between flying and learning to play an instrument because you don't become a crop duster pilot in three months. You just don't. You know, um, to be really good at anything takes a long time. And if you think you're in danger of stalling, uh, put your nose down a little bit. Maybe don't. You know, decrease your angle of attack and maybe try to increase your, well, you don't even have to increase your power. That will do it. Or increase your power, you know, maybe go take a few lessons, go to a workshop, uh, uh, listen to some more podcasts or download a video or something. But one of the things you'll notice I never mentioned in this talking about learning to play or talking about learning to fly I never in this conversation have mentioned that there was some purpose for it. Like I'm going to turn this into a business or I'm going to be hired as a commercial pilot or I want to gig in a band or I intend to go on the road or those things may come, but rarely are, are those good motivations for doing this. Yes, you can do that. You could say, I want to become a commercial pilot. I want to fly for FedEx and you go sign up at a commercial flight school and you study, 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 and you practice, 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 and you get hired and you're hauling freight, you know, for UPS or something. You can do it that way. But 99% of us are doing this because we love it. And it doesn't even matter why you love it. Whatever it is you're doing, I hope you love it. And, uh, if speaking to Bruce, if you're not loving it right now, just take a break, listen to podcast 88, point your nose down a little bit, maybe do some other stuff for a while. And if, as you say, you're old, so am I, (laughs) so am I, uh, you can, there's still time to do a whole lot of things. It could be a lot more time than you think. And you certainly don't want to waste the time that you have doing something that you're just bored with or not excited about. If you're not excited about it, 
just quit. It ain't no big deal. But do replace it with something that you do want to do. And that may not work out. And you may be right back playing your mandolin again, you know. Could be. I always like to, like when I'm going to a bluegrass festival or something, I didn't used to be this way. I used to go to a festival and all I want to do is pick, 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 pick. And then it became all I want to do is perform on stage. That's all I want to do. That's the only reason I'm at a festival. Now, it's it's way at the bottom of my list. Mostly, I want to wander around, shoot the breeze with people, uh, you know, eat, drink, maybe pick a little bit, try out people's instruments, just generally goofing around. My my whole motives for even being there have completely changed. And so the types of festivals that I enjoy has changed a bit. You know, I went through a period where I want to go to festivals to see certain people play, you know, and I think that's very important, especially in your formative years. But when I became a performer, I didn't really, I'd already seen them all play and I'd played on the same stages with them. You know, going on after the Osborne brothers and before the country gentlemen, you know, or Jim and Jesse, you know, we were on the same festivals, but I wasn't listening to them. I was just thinking about what we were doing and go out there and they weren't listening to us. They might hear it, but you know, they were thinking about what they're doing. So you get into this performers mode and then later on you may get into this, uh, well, just, uh, social mode, you might say. Anyway, there are a lot of parallels between learning to do anything, learning anything, and learning music. But just make sure that you're doing what you enjoy. And and final thing, try to... It, it could be the reason you're not enjoying it as much as you thought you might is because you're not doing with, with other people or with the right other people because if what you're doing doesn't bring enjoyment to someone else, how could it possibly bring enjoyment to you? I mean, that's, that's the road to hell. You know, if, if you're doing, so don't do things in isolation. Maybe Bruce just, uh, set aside trying to become any better on the thing and just go hang out a bunch, go hang out, uh, you know, and then that, burning desire may rekindle. Anyway, I have rambled on enough. I, I, I said I was going to talk about a guy. There's an old uh, friend of mine who's passed away now by the name of Red Yates. Doyle Yates. Red Yates. He worked at Delta and retired from Delta, and he was a bass player. He was an electric bass player. He played a lot in... Uh, semi-pro um, country bands throughout his his life. And he's an electric bass player. Very good, you know, doing that arpeggio-style electric bass. Well, I never saw him actually do that. Not in a country band up there on Central Avenue or, you know, those joints and stuff. Because I didn't know him then. But there was a band around the Atlanta area really south side of Atlanta, Fayetteville, called um, uh, Brushfire. The boys in Brushfire. Um, Brushfire needed a bass player, and they got Red Yates. And Red Yates started playing electric bass 
with brush fire. Now, Red started playing bluegrass very late in life. I don't know how old he was. He was definitely in his 60s. I think he had just retired from Delta and came into their group playing, really playing bluegrass for the first time as their bass player. Learning to play bluegrass at that age. Now, he was already a competent bass player, but what did he do? This is like when I say you can teach an old dog new tricks. He switched to upright bass, and he was not an upright bass player. He switched to upright, got this beautiful blonde K. And he became really good on that thing. And he was just they were playing festivals all over the Southeast and red was the dude, but he would take on new things even late in life until his literally to till his dying day. He was always doing learning, progressing, doing something new. I mean, I don't know many people who are taking up a new instrument at that age, but it, the, the thing is he I mean, those guys were playing at a lot of festivals. They were out there in the trenches playing the big festivals in the same circles that we were with Cedar Hill and during the same time frame. And uh, he opened a a T-shirt, a screen printing shop. Long after he retired, he and I think his son, they start a screen printing business. All this kind of stuff. So... He just wasn't looking at the end of the, you know, saying, well, you know, I'm too old for that. He just jumped in there and did it. Love that guy, Red Yates. I miss him. And I had numerous opportunities to jam with him because he was Southside Bluegrass Picker. And we would run into him at Bluegrass Festivals a lot. Um, But I, I had the wonderful experience of recording Red in my home recording studio when this other retired Delta guy named Don Cato, who was a fiddle player, decided to, it was time finally, after all those years, he was in his seventies to record an album. And he did. And I did the recording on it. And, uh, I think I played a tune off of this thing way on back a long time ago. I'm not going to talk all about the record other than to say that the bass playing that you are about to hear is my old pal who I dearly miss, Red Yates. And he knew that it was, you could teach an old dog new tricks. So I'm going to go out with this cut off of Don Cato's fiddle record. Uh, And I think, um, I'm trying to remember who all's on it. I'm playing some mandolin and some banjo. Uh, Buddy Ashmore is playing second rhythm guitar. Tommy Singleton is playing guitar. Red Yates on bass and Don Cato on the fiddle. Don Cato. So here we go. Miss you, Red. And hopefully, if you guys are stalling out, just don't pull back harder on that stick. You know, as scary as it is, point your nose down a little bit and try to recover and then get back to stable level flight. Y'all take it easy, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.
Thank you.